0: Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning and I am especially thankful for all of you who ventured up towards the front of the room and made room for more folks. We really appreciate you guys, especially in the 10 o'clock service. Um, making room for God's kingdom to expand is, is, is really um, what we're after here. It's why we do three services. Um, it's why we've asked you to move closer to the front and scooch in so we can make room to invite more folks to be a part of what God is doing in and through our church here. And so um, I just want to say that I, I see you. Those of you who moved up, thank you for that. And, uh, and so we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Isaiah 53. I've got a couple of Quick announcements um, while you turn there in your Bible or on your phone, tablet, or gadget. Um, As always, if you desire to follow along and didn't bring a Bible, uh, we put Bibles under the seats around you. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our free gift to you. Seriously, we won't chase you down if you carry that out of here. Put your name in it. That's your Bible. Take it home with you. Um, Just make sure it's one of the black hardback Bibles, because otherwise, it could be somebody else's Bible. But, (laughs) um, but that is seriously a free gift to you. Um, So we'll be in Isaiah 53 in just a minute. Uh, A couple things up front. Um, If you're visiting with us today, it's your first Sunday or you're new here, um, I want to say that my name is Jason. I have the honor of leading as a pastor here at the church and and ultimately uh, Jesus is the one leading this church. Um, The elders are six of us who do our best to follow his lead. Um, We're honored that you're here with us and I would really appreciate the opportunity to get to know you. And so um, I'm going to be hanging out at the end of the hallway Last room on the left, there's a little room with some coffee and some tables in there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna duck out and head out at the end of the service and that's where I'm gonna be. And I would love the opportunity to get to, to meet you. If you're new here, um, you've been visiting for just a short while and we haven't really had a chance to talk, let's do that. And I have a free gift for you today. So there's the, yeah, incentive. Now, if you're a member here, don't you come in there trying to get the free gift. This is for visitors, new attenders. So I wanna let you know that. Also connect class, um, which I always have to add this, it's less of a class and more of just a conversation. Um, This is how we get you the information that we feel like you need in order to make an informed God-led decision about becoming a member here. And so in that class, we like to just let you know everything about how things work behind the scenes from elder leadership to the finances to our non-negotiable theological tenets. And so that is next Sunday during this service, the 10 o'clock service. And so um, if that's you or you're even thinking about it, if you wouldn't mind putting your name and email on the list Um, it's on, it's at this, this column in the back in the connect corner, there's a little wooden shelf there, and there's a list there, Um, go ahead and add your name and email to that if you're thinking about it, Um, that way we have enough stuff printed, we don't, we don't mind having too many, we just don't want to get in a situation, we don't have enough printed for you if you want to come be a part of that, so um, there you go, and also one last thing, if you didn't grab a stack of invitations, or even if you did, um, we've got more of these to give away, these are invitations to our Christmas um, Eve services, Coming up on the 24th, and we're doing a four o'clock, five thirty, and seven o'clock. It's a reminder to you, but it's an invitation for others. Um, we're not fully sure what to expect. We might have standing room only, and at least one of the three. We're not quite sure, but um, we're gonna we're gonna go for it and trust God to sort all that out. Um, but be sure you um, be sure you remember, and then you invite anybody that you'd love to come be a part of that. And uh, there you go. So Isaiah 53 is where we'll be this morning. We are going to continue. Um, our sermon series on the real tree of Christmas, okay? This is the third Sunday of the Advent season, and we're using that title, the real tree of Christmas, um, not to be gimmicky or um, to be over seasonal, but here's my hope in this, that um, as you enter into different environments this Christmas season, the mall, department stores, this building, even your own home, when you see a Christmas tree, that something might resound in your heart, and the real meaning of Christmas. And the real tree of Christmas, which we'll be talking about today, will be first and foremost on your mind and heart. And so that's our hope through this. Um, we are looking at how um, the narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is, is earmarked with these scenes or these um, symbolisms of trees. Starting the first week with the fallen tree, we looked at the garden, how Adam and Eve, after they were created, they were placed in a garden of trees, it was the source of life to them. God told them to, be, to, to, be feel, to, free, to feel free to eat from these trees. But they were also told there was one particular tree, one only, that they were not to eat from At The moment they ate from it and disobeyed God, they would experience death. And so we saw the first week in Genesis 2 and chapter 3, how Adam and Eve, through their disobedience, not only did their sin bring about a death for them, but it set forth a curse of sin and death that impacted the whole family tree of humanity that every human being, every little precious baby is born under the weight of that curse. We looked at the next week, week two, at the the promise, the tree of promise, how through the lineage of Abraham, through Abraham's family tree, God promised to bless and restore all other family trees. God said, listen, I'm gonna make a promise to fix this that you have broken. And so today we're gonna be looking at the tree of suffering, the tree of suffering from Isaiah 53. Let's get started in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, as, and as one from whom men would hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So now we are in the book of Isaiah. where 600-plus years before the birth of Jesus, and God begins to speak through the prophet Isaiah about another tree. And here he begins to describe this tree as a, as a tree that would start off young and it would spring up out of dry ground. What's so important for us to note before we go any further is that this tree isn't an it, but it's a who. Do you see that? It's a he. And what sets this tree apart from the other trees that we've looked at so far, we've looked at these family trees, the family tree of Adam and Eve, the family tree of Abraham, is that this isn't a family tree, but this is a singular person. And what God is beginning to lay out for us through the prophet Isaiah here is a beautiful description of the Messiah coming to earth to rescue God's people. And so the prophet Isaiah begins to talk about another tree, a tree of suffering. Now I want to look at a couple things with you first of all. In verse 2 we read that he, this is the, the tree, will grow up before us like a young plant. Now, this is important because for the people of Israel, when they thought of the messianic prophecies, these promises that God would send a rescuer, they were expecting an adult, a strong, a key, leading figure to step into their scene and, and save the day, superhero style. And so this description of the Messiah coming to them would, he would, he, is this, that he would come to them, first of all, young. So they weren't expecting a manger scene to begin the rescue mission of God. And so through the prophet Isaiah, God lets us know that this one who would rescue us would come to us, first of all, in a very vulnerable state of being young. Think about it. Any strong tree begins, first of all, young and vulnerable, doesn't it? We think about here in North Texas, one of the strongest trees is the oak tree, the live oak tree. And even a live oak tree, when it first buds and springs forth through the, through the dirt, any person in this room could walk up with two fingers and pluck it from the soil. Give it 30 years. There isn't a person in this room who could push the tree over. And what God is saying about the Messiah who would come to rescue us from this curse of sin and death would start out very tender, very young, and very vulnerable. If you want to take notes with us this morning, the sermon notes are in front of you. The first thing I want to note this is that the tree of suffering would start young and vulnerable. Now, it's important to keep this in mind. This is a willful vulnerability. God wasn't backed into a corner. We didn't strip God of anything. He chose to set aside his strength, his majesty, his glory, and become vulnerable among us. But is there anything more young, tender, and vulnerable than a little baby? This is the form of... This is the form that God chose to bring his son into the world in. Jesus could have stepped into the world as a full-grown man. Matter of fact, that's how he's coming back. But in the Christmas scene, the nativity, God is saying, I am sending my rescuer to you, and he will will sprout sprout up among you like a tender young man. Now, the next thing that we note in verse 2 is this. Not only will he be young and tender and vulnerable, he will come to you from the most unlikely of sources, like a root out of dry ground. Now, we would expect a root or a tree to come out of moist ground or fertile ground or rich soil. But what God is saying is that this Messiah will come to you from the most unlikely of sources. Now, from a human perspective, I was at the back of the room in the first part of the service, and I was watching uh, Tony Spires worshiping with his little grandbaby in his arms. And we were singing, um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and I was just seeing the tenderness of that moment, and there was a baby in the picture on the screen. And, and, and let's just be honest, any parent here who has been a part of, like, bringing children in this world, those little miracles, right, don't they catch you off guard the first time you look at it? Like, this came from me? Like, how, how more unlikely a source, Right. But but bigger than that, what's happening is not just that a baby is being born, but God is being born from an unlikely source. There are tons of reasons to discredit uh, Joseph the carpenter engaged to to marry this teenage mom. Tons of reasons to say this is not a likely source, but let's just be honest. If this had been Pilate and his wife, or King Herod and and his wife, or, or one of the pharaohs, or some amazing political leader, it still wouldn't have been enough, right? It still would have been an unlikely source for God's son to be born to us. And so Isaiah opens up the nativity scene by painting this picture to us that the Messiah would come to us young and vulnerable from an unlikely source. The next thing we read here as we continue is this, that he had no majesty no form or majesty that we should look at him no beauty that we should desire him there would be nothing aesthetic about this particular leader that would draw our gaze that would cause us to go I bet that's him matter of fact the opposite would be true not only would he come from an unlikely source he would look like an unlikely rescuer and think about this This is not just an everyday man. This is God's son being born to us. And in that moment, what God is doing is he's allowing his son to strip off momentarily his majesty, his glory, his strength, and his power, and he's stepping into our world. From our perspective as recipients, what looks bright and promising and hopeful for a moment from God's perspective is dark. Because his son is stepping out of his majesty into suffering. And so the prophet Isaiah says there's nothing majestic about this rescuer. There'll be nothing about his outward appearance that would draw your gaze to him to cause you to go, this must be him. And then this final part of verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised. Now we first read that and we think about other men. We think about the men of Jesus' day. We think about Herod. We think about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the religious leaders who rejected Jesus, right? We think, oh yeah, those men rejected Jesus. But the last phrase makes this incredibly personal because here's what it says. And we esteemed him not. You see, part of the nativity is our rejection. Every person in this room at some point in your life has rejected Christ. It could be an all out. I want nothing to do with Jesus or church or religion. I want nothing to do with that. And so I am rejecting Jesus. Or it could have been the attitude of your heart and the way you treated your wife yesterday. Right? There are those who are not believers and they know it. And they say, I want nothing to do with Jesus or his church or his people. I'm rejecting Jesus altogether. And there are those of us who are even believers who struggle even on a daily basis, right? You maybe even had a conversation this morning that in some way indicated a rejection of Jesus' love and grace for you because you failed to extend that to somebody else. But here's the point. We all have been involved and engaged in rejecting Jesus. He was born unto us knowing that anyway. Think about that. It wasn't a toss-up for God. I I hope they receive you. I hope this goes well for you. I hope some of them will appreciate what you're doing for them. No, from the beginning, the plan was this. You will be despised. You will be rejected. And we esteemed him not. The tree of salvation would be despised and rejected by us. By us. Now, this is, the, this is the imagery of the nativity scene. So it's not a great start from our perspective, is it? doesn't sound like the typical rescue mission where the hero rides into town on a horse leading an army and he liberates the people. This looks like a rough start, but maybe it's going to get better from here, right? Maybe it's going to turn a corner. He's going to become an adult. People are going to quit rejecting him and start accepting him and following him. And and then we'll see this guy as a rescuer. So we step into verse four and begin to get a description of the purpose of this baby being born. And so verse four says this, Surely... God speaks to the prophet Isaiah and says not only is the rescuer, the Messiah, going to come to you in very humble form from most unlikely of sources and you're going to reject him and not run to him. Not only is that, but he's going to be headed towards a life of suffering. The suffering kind of plays out in two categories here. First of all, he'll be pierced. He will be pierced for our transgressions. And then we read at the very end of verse 5 that with his wounds we are healed. We know this rescuer, this Messiah that will come to us, will be physically injured on our behalf. There will be a piercing that will happen to him, and there will be wounds that will happen to this Messiah. So there's this one category of suffering that he will experience, which is a physical suffering, but the most prominent form of suffering has to do with weight. Do you catch the wording, starting in verse 4? Surely he has borne our griefs and sorrow. Like, that's the idea of him holding up the weight of our burdens. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Not only that, in verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. You begin to see that this suffering would include this weightiness. that that as God's son steps into our world, he will be doing so stepping in underneath the weight of something to bear up a burden of ours. Now, every person in this room, on some level, is familiar with the weight of shame and guilt. It is a heavy burden to know you're guilty. Whether you're guilty of mistreating somebody you love like a spouse when you come to the place of owning that sin, it's weighty, right? I've hurt you. I've caused damage to you. I've I've helped create a false picture of you in your own mind and heart by the way I treated you. That's a weighty thing, isn't it? It's it's the reason why, right, under the weight of shame and guilt, we do everything we can in our power to get out from underneath it, including blame-shifting, Right? This is heavy. I don't know how to bear it. I don't think I can live with myself with this weight, so it must be somebody else's fault. God, it's my spouse's fault. Did you, see what, did you hear what she said to me first? I mean, she was being snotty all day long before I said that, or I did that, or it's my kid's fault. They're stressing me out, or it's my boss's fault. He, he or she expects too much of me. It's somebody else's fault. And then what happens at the end of the day, we're left with the reality that, no, it's actually my fault. So then what do we do? We try to minimize sin. Well, let's just make it less than so it wasn't a lie, it didn't betray you, it was just a white lie, just twist the truth a little. And we minimize, we try to minimize our sin and what does Jesus do in his first public sermon recorded in Matthew? He doesn't minimize our sin, he maximizes it. He says, hey, you've heard it said, do not murder, that's a big deal. He says, I'll tell you the truth though, if you've said raka, in your heart, basically if you said I hate you, you've already engaged in murder. He maximizes sin, not minimizes it about lust you've heard it said not to commit adultery I tell you the truth if you've looked at a woman lustfully in your own mind man you've already committed adultery he maximizes why to make you feel more guilty no so that you understand why you already feel so guilty why you already feel this shame and this weight and this burden that you with your best efforts to get away from it Right, You put on the facade, you pretend to be better than you're not. At the end of the day, you lay your head on the pillow and all energy is exhausted and all of a sudden the weight just comes crushing back down on you. And you know, I'm guilty. And so not only would the Messiah come to be pierced, to be wounded for our transgressions, but he came to bear up the weight of our shame and our guilt. The tree of suffering would be pierced and crushed for our sins, pierced and crushed. I want to look at Galatians 3 with you for just a moment so we get a better uh, depiction of what it, it means that Jesus stepped into our world underneath the weight. And so in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10, we read first of all about us. Verse 10 says, for all who rely on works of the law are under, there's that that idea of weight, under a curse, right? So if you were a person who says, I'm going to impress God with my morality, I'm going to earn my way into heaven by being good, what's going to happen is you're going to be crushed, because you're going to fail immediately, and then you're going to take a step back and say, well, I'm going to try harder, and it's going to be like running back into a brick wall, boom, and you're going to fail again, And then the weight of shame and guilt that begins to sink in and settle in on you, you're going to try even harder and harder until what? Until you're exhausted and you have nothing left to give. Why? Because as as, as humans, as God's creation, after the fall, we're born under the weight of the curse of sin and death. And we can do nothing to liberate ourselves of it. This is what Paul's saying in Galatians 3. All who are relying on works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because it is written cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So this idea that, well, I've done mostly good or I've been mostly obedient to God, that won't work. If you're going to make your way to God up the the ladder of morality, you've got to be perfect. Right? That's a heavy burden. An impossible task. And so we're Galatians 3 goes next, is this, to begin to explain to us, in verse 12, we're going to read that, uh, but the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hang on a tree. So you see what Jesus is doing when he steps into our world, he's stepping in underneath the burden, Of your shame and your guilt, and he's lifting it. He's doing that which you can't do for yourself. With all your strength and all your best efforts, you cannot free yourself from this weight. And he's saying, I will bear this weight for you. By faith in me, you can be liberated. Verse 14 of Galatians 3 says, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So not only would this tree of suffering be pierced and crushed for us, but this tree of suffering would bring us peace and healing. Peace and healing. That's what he says in Isaiah 53. that his chastisement will bring us peace and that by his wounds we will be healed. Now, we're not talking at this point in human history about global peace. That comes next week. What we're talking about is individual peace for you. First of all, peace in your relationship with God. Peace that leads to this freedom rather than this feeling, this need to run from God and hide from God and hide your sins from God. You're now compelled to run to God. There's peace there. There's nothing to be embarrassed of there. There's nothing to feel shameful f- for being in the presence of God in that. You, you come to God because, one, because Christ has reconciled. He's made peace between you and God. Every reason that God had to punish you has already been poured out on Jesus. There's nothing left for you. If you, if you try to approach God that way, like, I, you still owe me some punishment here, God, then you've, what you've done is you, you've diffused the cross. You're saying the cross wasn't enough. And what we're reading here in Isaiah 53 is that the weight of the sins of the world will be poured out on Jesus for you and that by trusting in Jesus, you'll have complete peace with God. Your soul can finally rest at night when you lay down on your pillow knowing that Jesus has paid for everything. It's also a peace that transcends into your relationships with one another. I mean, the church is a beautiful snapshot of peace. You look around a room like this and you see all the different backgrounds, ethnicities, socioeconomic, some are church, some are not churched, right? Different personalities, different hobbies, but our one singular interest is what? Christ. And that by trusting in Christ, he has brought peace to you and I. That's why we're a church family and not just just an organization or a gathering of people. We're a family here. I love you. I, I love you. Feel like you may love me? I don't know. But I watch you love one another really well. Why? Because Jesus has brought you peace. And by his wounds, he has brought to us personally healing. Think about it. There's no way to engage in sin without encountering a wound. It's not possible. Starting, first of all, with your own heart, right? Whether it's speaking in anger to somebody, lashing out, maybe something you've done to somebody or a betrayal, right? It wounds something inside of you. But then there's what? There's also the wound for the other person, right? And the only way those wounds are healed, the only way is through faith in Christ. And Jesus is being wounded on the cross saying what? I'll take all these wounds upon myself that your wounds can be healed. See, by his chastisement, he brought us peace. And by his wounds we have been healed. Verse six and seven begins to paint a more vivid picture of what Jesus will do on our behalf. Verse six says this: all we like sheep have gone astray. Such a simple phrase. This, this idea of a, of a, of a sheepfold or a, a herd of sheep is being used to de- symbolize and describe who we are. We're like sheep. Don't know how many sheep farmers we have in the room? Sheep can be incredibly frustrating animals. First of all, they're dumb. God's word just called you dumb. And me too, right? Because like sheep, what? We're prone to do dumb things. We're prone to turn away from goodness and peace and love and mercy and turn what? towards sin that leads to shame and guilt and death. That's dumb, but we all do it, right? Why? Because we're like sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. What does that mean to go astray? He tells us we have turned everyone to his own way. I'm just gonna gonna part with some important information for you. Your way is dumb. But you didn't expect to hear that in a Christmas sermon. Your way. Your direction, your ambitions, your methods to get where you want to get in life, according to God's word, are dumb. Why are they dumb? Not because God wants to bully you or make fun of you. Because he wants you to know they won't lead to what you're after. Chase them. They won't lead to peace or healing. You can work your way up the rungs of the ladder at your job, and you can earn the accolades of man. You can make, find your picture on the cover of a magazine or make a news report. You can earn favor in this world for a moment, but you'll never find peace or healing by chasing your own way it's dumb it's what sheep do they take their own way saying what I like the pasture over here it looks greener And the shepherd says "No, no 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 and brings them back you don't want to go over there the grass isn't better over there or maybe the grass is better but there are wolves over there and so the shepherd keeps the sheep from following their own way and what the prophet Isaiah is saying is that we all like sheep have gone astray and turned our own way but look at what he says next and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And then look at what he says next. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so now what God is going to do is he's going to use this imagery of a sheep to help us understand who Jesus is he's going to come to us again, young and vulnerable, like a a newborn lamb, spotless and innocent. But in the same way that a a sheep is led to the shears and doesn't complain and doesn't push back and is silent, so Jesus would approach his suffering that way. You see, Jesus is, in, in becoming a baby, he's become a lamb like us, a sheep like us. And we have to understand this The cross that Jesus suffered and died on, that wasn't his cross. That was our cross. Do you understand that? Jesus took that cross from you. That wasn't his. He didn't do anything to deserve that or earn that. There was no reason for him to go to that. But he chose to be born as a spotless, precious lamb, to look like us, to walk among us, to ultimately make his way to our cross and take our place. The tree of suffering would take our place on the cross. Our place on the cross. This baby born in a manger was born to die for you. For you. Now we're going to look at verse 10 in Isaiah 53 together and potentially one of my favorite verses in the book of Isaiah here. Um, It begins with these words. Yet... It was, meaning what? Despite all that that has been shared about the suffering and and, and this vulnerability that that God's son would subject himself to, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And why is that important? I think about um, after the resurrection, there's a scene where a couple of Jesus' followers are on their way to Emmaus, and um, they've just witnessed the cross, but they've kind of not gotten it. They just witnessed what we read about in Isaiah 53, but they didn't make the connections and realize that was supposed to happen, and they're lamenting, and they're feeling downtrodden, and they're beginning to lose hope. Man, we really thought this was going to be the one. We really thought this was our Messiah, our leader, everything. We put all of our trust in this one, that he was the one. And Jesus comes walking among them, and they don't recognize him right? Why? Because they thought that the story ended with death. They didn't read all of Isaiah 53, and they hadn't understood fully verse 10, that what happened to Jesus on the cross, it was the the wills of the Father. God said, this is my plan. That's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to send my son. You won't recognize him. Rather than being born into majesty, he's going to be born into humility, Rather than being this this bronzy, good-looking political leader who just draws people, he's going to be one that you'd actually just hide your face from and reject and walk away from. That's going to be my son. Be ready for him. And not only that, he's going to end his life in suffering for you. He's going to take your place on the cross. And these two disciples, they hadn't connected that because they were beginning to lose hope that they had trusted in the wrong Messiah. And what Isaiah is telling us in 53 verse 10, we have to understand, this is the will of the Lord. Matter of fact, this verse bookends with the will of the Lord. What does he say? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord shall prosper. Not the will of men, not the will of the sheep, but the will of God will prosper. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but this is a beautiful message of hope. Yes, there's going to be a crushing. It's the will of God. Yes, there's going to be suffering. God is going to put him to grief. But here's what we have to catch. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's the cross. Jesus is making an offering for our guilt. He shall see his offspring. Now, such a subtle phrase there but if we think about it in the context of the full narrative of the bible we saw that the curse to Adam and Eve wasn't just their curse it was a curse for their future offspring it was a curse that would impact every generation of offspring going forward including us today and what we're reading about is through this sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf that it would positively impact his offspring there would be a new offspring that's why Jesus talks about our need to be born again or adopted into God's family. We're given this new family tree by being adopted into God's family. So even in the midst of suffering, Jesus has on his mind future offspring, future followers who will come into the family. And not only that, we read this he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his. His days. And I think this is applying, first of all, to Jesus in his suffering, but then it comes to us as a gift. Saying what? The, the death of Jesus is not the final chapter in the story. It's not the end of it. There's going to be a prolonging of days, right? What in that moment seems like everything fails, Jesus is dead. is actually just the beginning, right? Just a ramp up to the climax of the story. Death would not have the final word over Jesus. His days would be prolonged. And listen to the message of hope to us, that by trusting in faith in Jesus, our days would be prolonged. What was the curse to Adam? If you eat from this tree, your days will be cut short. You'll surely die. And now through the sacrifice of Jesus, that's being reversed for us, that our days would be prolonged for all eternity. And then this final phrase, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Even if it looks bleak, even if it looks like it's everything's going wrong, it is the will of the Lord, and God will prosper. God's Messiah will stand as a victor at the end of the day. So the tree of suffering is this beautiful portrait, not only of the nativity, but of the cross and resurrection of Jesus for us. If you're taking notes, the tree of suffering would become a tree of victory for us. It's the point of the manger. Jesus is on his way to secure victory for you. Think about that. When you see a baby in a nativity scene this Christmas season, you can just imagine that's God's son on his way to secure victory for me. Victory from what? Sin and the shame and the guilt and the burden that comes with it and victory from death. That by trusting in him, my days could be prolonged for all eternity with him. The tree of suffering will become a tree of victory. I want to end with reading a verse um, from Isaiah chapter 9. and It's one we've talked about in our services already um, in this series. And one you've probably seen on the window of a storefront or a coffee mug or a sweater. Um, But I want to read it with us fresh now if I can. This is Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, the real tree of Christmas is Jesus. It's not a tree. It's the Son of God being born to suffer and die in our place that we might have victory by trusting in Him. So my hope for you and I this Christmas season, every room that we walk into that has a Christmas tree, when you look at the Christmas tree, we would think beyond the cultural icons that we associate with the holiday season, and that in every Christmas tree you would see Jesus. God's son stepping into our world to become like us, to die in our place, and to secure victory for us. My hope this Christmas season is that despite all the commercialism and all the things that cause us to grumble and complain, that that for God's people there would be a sense of expectancy, this this desire kind of welling up inside of us to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the real tree of Christmas. I'm gonna pray for us now and invite our worship team to come back up. So I just invite you to pray with me now if if you're willing and able to do that. I just wanna start by thanking God for uh, the birth of his son on our behalf. Just join your heart with me. Father, we are so thankful for what Christmas represents to us. God, it is so much more than a season. It's so much bigger than a manger. And the impact of Christmas lasts so much longer than a lifetime. God, this morning you've opened up our eyes to see Jesus is the real tree of Christmas. And we know that part of the rescue mission included him humbling himself, walking among us in humility and vulnerability The son of God looks like a man. God, we know that that part of the plan was for your son to to head and to journey towards a cross, a cross of rejection, a cross of being despised, a cross of suffering and a cross of death. But God, together we wanna acknowledge that wasn't his cross, that was ours so thankful for the christmas message that when we trust in jesus his victory becomes our victory he did what we couldn't do for ourselves And thank you for rescuing us by sending your son father we want to end by just saying we're so thankful that when we call out to you you answer this morning we pray for any person here this morning God who has not called out to you reached out to you that today would be the day and that you would answer and you would rescue like only you could do pray this in your powerful name as we uh, as we prepare to sing and respond I want to let you know that if you're here today and you're not a Christian you haven't come to that place in your life where you've trusted in Jesus and him alone then I want you to know that today is your day. As we stand to sing, I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to be at the back of the room. Um, They've got lanyards on, so you'll know who they are. Um, The prayer rooms are open, and they'd be honored to talk with you about becoming a Christian today and just pray with you in that. Maybe something, something else going on in your life you'd like prayer for. You could as well slip out and find one of our prayer partners there in the back. They'd be honored to pray with you. If you want to stay seated feel free to do that for the rest of us we're going to stand to sing now